0: Good singing this morning. And boy, what a good job picking those songs. Thank you for for that. I think they go along so well with the message this morning. I'd just like to ask you if you would take your Bibles and turn over to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. We'll be starting at verse 36 and reading through John 14 and verse 6 this morning. We're in a section of Scripture called the Upper Room Discourse. And the the section of Scripture that we're looking at kind of falls right in the middle here of the section from John chapter 13 and verse 1 all the way through the end of John chapter 17 where Jesus prays His high priestly prayer. So let's read this passage together. Follow along, please. John thirteen and verse thirty six through fourteen six. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, Where I go you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly I say to you, A rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am... There you may be also. Think of a time in your own life, in your own uh, walk with the Lord, where you've had a spiritual struggle, a time when you've had trouble trusting God. Do you remember how many questions you had at that time? How many questions you had for the Lord about what was going on? Why is this happening? How could God allow this to happen to me? Troubled hearts have lots of questions. And that's what we find in our sermon text here today. It's clear that the disciples were troubled. Jesus addressed it plainly there in verse one of chapter 14 when he said, do not let your hearts be troubled. The troubled hearts were probably evident to to him by their facial expressions, by their speech, uh, their body language. It was very evident. But, you know, Jesus did not depend on these clues to know that their hearts were troubled. Psalm 139 verses 1 and 4 say, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Even before there is a word on my tongue, Behold, O Lord, you know it all. So Jesus sits with his disciples, knowing the troubled states of their heart, even knowing what they're going to say before they say it. What were they troubled about? Well, I think there were three main things they were troubled about, maybe more, but three main things. First of all, I think they had troubled hearts because of what Jesus had said to them in uh, chapter 12, verses 32 and 33. He said, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he would die. Jesus had told them that he was going to be crucified Now, he had mentioned previously that he was going to go to Jerusalem, that he was going to suffer many things, but he makes it clear here. And the Bible says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And they were shocked that Jesus would say that he was about to be crucified. They had a hard time with this statement. It didn't meet up with the expectations that they had in their thinking. They were thinking... Because just remember, only a few days earlier, Jesus had come into Jerusalem on a colt and they threw palm branches at his feet and he was coming in, in the triumphal entry of a king and they thought he was assuming his kingdom. Well, just think of what that meant for them. These who had left everything to follow Christ. They had put their lives and sunk their lives completely into following Jesus Christ. Just imagine their hearts how excited they were to think that they were going to be a part of the followers of Christ who would rule with him in his kingdom. And they longed for this. But now Jesus says, I'm going to be crucified. They also had troubled hearts because Jesus had just said that one of them would betray him. He declared this to the to to all the disciples there in John chapter 12, or John chapter 13, excuse me, verse 21. Truly, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Just imagine this tight knit group of disciples. They had been with the Lord for three years. And they were, uh, becoming very close friends. And now Jesus said, one of you will betray me. How do you handle that? What kind of trouble does that bring to your heart? And then they had troubled hearts also because Jesus was leaving them. And that's what he said up in verse Uh, 33 in chapter 13 little children I am with you a little while longer you will seek me and as I said to the Jews now I say to you where I'm going you cannot come Wow, he's going to be crucified somebody's going to betray him one of them and he's going to leave and you cannot come with me he's saying so they were distressed they were troubled they were fearful what's next They were agitated in their hearts. Jesus was leaving? The Lord Jesus, was He abandoning us? Is He going to just leave? These are honest questions from doubting hearts of true disciples. They had no one else to turn to. Like Simon Peter said in chapter 6 and verse 68, of John, he said, "Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life." Well, Jesus knew their hearts, and He knew that they needed help. So the disciples all sat and listened, and we have two spokesmen who speak up here: Peter and Thomas in the in the, past, the passage that we read. So the Lord is very truthful with them, but He's also very compassionate. Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14 say, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So Jesus here offers assurances about the future so that they can cling to these assurances in these troubled times. Beloved, I want to share with you this morning the three assurances from Jesus so that your heart also will not be troubled about the future. Because I believe Jesus brings to them great hope in this passage. How would you describe Peter? If we were to think about Peter, we would probably say, well, he was a leader. He was confident. He was a very passionate man. But we would also probably say, yeah, he was a little bit impetuous. He was sometimes very self-willed. And that kind of hits home to me sometimes about how I am. Maybe it does to you as well. We're reactionary people. And Peter here comes in First of all, and we need to give him a little bit of credit, I think he comes in with a very commendable desire. And that desire is to be with Christ. And he uh, comes in here as a leader and a spokesman of the disciples, and he steps forward and he asks two questions. One is in verse 36 and one's in verse 37. First of all, he asks, where are you going? Jesus said, "Said I'm going to leave and where I'm going, you cannot come. So he asked the first question, where are you going? And then the second question he asks is in verse 37. Why can I not follow you right now? And you just see in Peter's heart for Christ that he loved the Lord and he wanted passionately to be with Jesus Christ. But Peter and the other disciples were filled like we are so often with selfish desires. Think of what has occurred for them just recently. It's helpful for us when we think about it to kind of take the synoptic Gospels and kind of fold them together so that we can fill in some of the gaps. But while they ate the Passover supper... And, and Jesus gets up from the supper to wash their feet, to teach them servanthood to one another, to teach them love and care for one another. They were needy in this very first communion. They were needy people because they weren't serving one another. And then Jesus, then he predicted his betrayal by one of them. And that's in John 13, 21. But for some reason, the disciples, I guess they may not have heard or exactly what Jesus uh, meant or they couldn't assume that that He meant Judas even though He clearly said, the one to whom I pass the sop is the one who's going to uh, betray me. But somehow they were confused about that. They didn't understand these words when Jesus said to Judas, what thou doest, do quickly. And they began to discuss among themselves who was going to do this thing. So now you can imagine they're a little bit suspicious of one another. But there's all kinds of trouble going on here. And then uh, Jesus gave them an assurance that They were going to be with him in his kingdom, ruling over the tribes of Israel. He made this statement. We find that in another synoptic gospel. But then, after hearing Jesus say that to them, they started arguing with one another about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Can you imagine, after Jesus just washed their feet, that they would now start to argue about who would be the greatest? There was trouble in their hearts. And Jesus spoke to them about their need to be servants and not lords after they did that. All of these events illustrate for us the dullness of the insight of the disciples and their self focus. They should have been thinking about the Lord who said that he was going to go to the cross but they were thinking about themselves. And trouble-filled, self-filled, self-focused hearts breed troubled conversations and troubled attitudes. Peter trusted himself. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? What does he say? I will lay down my life for you. He trusted himself. He had an independent, prideful confidence. Benjamin Franklin uh, said in his autobiography, there's perhaps no one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases, and it's still alive. Even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome pride, I would probably be proud of my humility. That's the way it is for us. It is in deep inside of the human heart, pride. And Peter trusted his own solution. He says, I will lay down my life. I will stop this. This can't happen. Well, this was kind of an ongoing thing in Peter's heart about this issue about Jesus going to die. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, in Matthew 16, 21-23, it says, From that time Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and to suffer many things from the elders, chief priests and scribes, and to be killed and to be raised up on the third day. And yet Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's purposes, but men's. Imagine Peter trying to set the Lord straight. Jonah had this kind of self-will. The Lord told him, to call um, the Ninevites to repentance, to preach to them. And what did Jonah do? He got on a ship and sailed in the opposite direction. Well, we know how that story ends. But this is the self-will that we have in our own hearts. And you know... This sounds all too familiar with us. It's the way that we act. We crown ourselves as the king of our own lives, don't we? We have self-assurance. We have this attitude of independence, thinking that we know our own hearts better than God knows our hearts, thinking that we can solve the problems that we have But Jesus had not taught them in this way. In John 5.30, He says, I can do nothing on My own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and My judgment is just, because I do not seek My will, but the will of Him who sent Me. Peter was convinced that he would save the Lord or die trying. But Jesus made a shocking statement to Peter in verse 38. Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. This is shocking to Peter. Peter had rejected these words. He, he rejected that he would deny Jesus. And, and, and his pride didn't stop here. When Jesus told him what was going to happen, Peter continued to argue with the Lord after they had left the upper room. In Mark 14:26 to 31, we read, "Now this is after they're leaving the upper room. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to him, "Will you all fall away? Because it is written, "I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered." But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Jesus said to him, Even though we all fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they are all saying the same thing also. You see, Peter wasn't the only one who would deny the Lord. All of the disciples would scatter. And so Jesus was shepherding Peter and the rest of the disciples in their faith. He was being so patient with them. Just like the Lord shepherds us. He was warning them about how they would fail when they would depend upon themselves. But Peter was not able to accept what Jesus said. And with great emotion and assurance of himself, Peter and the rest of the disciples argue with Jesus. They would never deny him. And it gets even uglier. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter takes up arms. He takes up arms. He takes matters into his own hands. Remember, that he in Luke twenty two, forty-seven through fifty-one, he struck the slave of one of the, the religious leaders, Malchus was his name. He he struck him with a sword. What do you think he was trying to do? I think he was trying to kill him. He was had murder in his heart. And what happened? He cut off the servant's ear. And Jesus replaced the ear of the slave. And he turned to Peter and he said, stop this. You're thinking about your own affairs. You're thinking about the things of man, but not the things of God. And he says in another passage, should I not drink of the cup that the Father has given to me? And so our first assurance comes right here. I want you to see the assurance that Jesus gave Peter and the disciples in John 13:36. The first assurance is the assurance of our security in Christ. Those who belong to Christ will never fail. They will be kept by Christ and continue to follow Him. It's an assurance of our security in Christ. Before Jesus ever told Peter that He would deny Him, He gave a promise to him, a wonderful assurance. He says there in verse 36, when Simon Peter said to the Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Just think about what Peter had done. And it would be so easy to miss this assurance here. Given the weight of Peter's failure and his denial of the Lord? I mean, what could be worse than to deny the Lord three times? Can you think of anything you could do that's worse than that? To have murder in your heart to make sure that you make your plan happen instead of his? And yet Jesus said there in verse 36, but you will follow later. What an assurance. Do you see that assurance there? That's an amazing assurance that Jesus would say to someone who acted like anything but a follower of Christ and one who would deny Christ three times that he would follow later. Why was it that Peter asked Jesus where he was going anyway? Well, we already referred back to verse 33. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus had said this to the unbelieving Jews. If we look back at John chapter 8, verse 21, he said to them, I go and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. You see the difference in the way that he talked to unbelievers as to how he talked to believers, to Peter and to the rest of the disciples? Failure is not final when we've trusted Christ. There is a theology that I think hurts the heart of God. And I've heard this many times is that if you do so many things against the Lord, if you sin in such a way, you will become useless to God and He'll put you on a shelf and you'll never be used by Him again. You know, that is false theology right there. That's wrong. God is never done with His children. God will sustain us. He will hold us fast like the song that we sang this morning. And... We will follow Him. We will follow Him later. Even though perhaps now there's sin in our lives. And I want to say to you that you can find hope in this, this morning. Maybe you have kind of given up on yourself in your walk with the Lord. As such a, feeling like such a failure. But the Lord is shepherding you. He's shepherding all of us so that we might realize He's not done with us. He has a future for us. We are going to follow Him. He is going to sustain us. The Lord knows all of your failures and He shepherds you in your faith and He intercedes for you before the Father. I was thinking about the rooster. What do you think Peter thought about roosters after all of this? You know, he probably didn't like roosters very much. Every time he'd hear a rooster crow, it would remind him of how he had denied Christ. But I also think maybe he did like roosters. Because he remembered, probably every time he'd hear a rooster crow, he would remember that Jesus had said to him, you will follow later. And he thought, what a wonderful assurance. Even though I fail the Lord, he never will fail me. Well, the second assurance that we find is the assurance of our reunion with Christ in verses 1-3 through there of chapter 14. Those who belong to Christ will never be abandoned. They will be received by Christ and dwell with Him in the Father's house. Let's read those verses. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus says in in verse 1, Do not let your hearts be troubled. The word troubled means to be shaken. Shaken to be stirred up. And it's interesting to see, um, if if you dig in a little bit and look back in verse, um, I believe it's verse 21 of chapter 13, it says, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Well, Jesus was troubled and the disciples were troubled seems strange that one who's troubled would tell others who are troubled not to be troubled. But I I like something that one of the commentators I was reading, Matthew Poole, he said this about um, the trouble that Jesus had, the troubled spirit that Jesus had versus the troubled spirit of the disciples. And he compared it to two glasses of water. One glass of water had... Silt and kind of mud at the bottom of the glass. And it had settled, and the rest of the water was clear. The other glass was pure, crystal clear water. And those two glasses, when they were stirred, what happened to the one with the silt and the mud at the bottom? It became cloudy and dirty, and you couldn't even see through it anymore. But the one that was clear stayed clear no matter how much you agitated it. It was clear. It was pure. And what the, I think the point is here that Jesus in His troubled spirit was troubled because He was about to bear the sins of the whole world. The Father was about to turn His face from His beloved Son. But the disciples were troubled on their own account. They had doubts and feelings of abandonment and mistrust. They had this prideful arguing. There was lots of sinful human elements here. Lots of trouble like we have sometimes in our hearts when we're troubled about things. And I think that we should realize when we are troubled that there is a human... Sinful root to that trouble. And we need to recognize that it should be something that kind of flips the switch and tells us there's trouble spiritually here. But Jesus says to them, stop being troubled. Put your heart at ease. He's not saying to them, don't even start being troubled. They were already troubled. He was saying, stop this being troubled and put your heart at ease. He wasn't shaming them. Jesus was not saying too bad. You sure failed this time. Jesus was doing the opposite. He was about to tell them on what basis their hearts could be at ease. And he says that in verse 1. This is the way that your heart can be at ease. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Well, he uses three imperatives in a row. Do not let your heart be troubled is a command, an imperative. Believe in God is an imperative. Believe also in me is an imperative. He gives them clear instruction about how to deal with trouble in their life. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. This is a remarkable statement to say it this way. Let me illustrate that for you. My wife, Susan, has a very old rocking chair and beautiful, beautiful rocking chair. And it was in need of repairs. Well, men, when your wife uh, knows that something needs to be repaired and, and you say, well, I can fix that. And then she might wonder whether you really can fix that or whether she really wants to have you take a stab at it. Um would you ever say to your wife, believe in God, believe also in me. We wouldn't do that, would we? We wouldn't say something like that. Why? Because we would be putting ourselves in the place of God. We would be saying, Hey, if you if you believe in God, you should believe in me. That's making ourselves to be God. Well, I'll kind of come to my own defense here, um, and that is that the reason that the um, rocking chair was broken was because I sat on it and broke it. Well, um, I wanted to tell you that before my wife did, and uh, and I did repair the rocking chair, and. And in my defense, I would say that you can't even tell it was ever broken. And they say when you use the right glue and clamps and all of that and fasteners, that it's stronger after it's repaired than it was before it was broken. But I have a problem with that chair. I don't sit in that chair anymore. Why is that? Because I don't really trust that chair. It broke on me once. Well, wavering faith is a result of dependence upon that which has a history of failure. And it can't be trusted. But Jesus said, you believe in God, believe also in me. And what he was doing when he said that, literally, the word order there is, believe in God, in me, believe also. Jesus puts himself right next to God the Father. And what he is saying is he's making a declaration. I am God. You can believe in me. Trust me. The Lord has never once failed us, has he? But if your trust is in yourself or something else, or someone else, It can fail, and you know that it can fail. That's why your heart is troubled about it. Think of Noah. He could have believed all of the scoffers, but instead he built his life upon the Lord, and he built an ark to the salvation of his family. He believed God, and it was counted unto him as righteousness. God has greater plans for us than we could have ever imagined. But he wants us to believe in him, to trust him. The disciples were confused and troubled knowing that Jesus was about to leave, to be delivered into the hands of the cruel Romans, and knowing that their expectations for glory were dashed as far as Jesus immediately setting up the kingdom. They were seeing themselves as abandoned. Jesus is leaving. They were seeing themselves as homeless. And they were soon, they thought, I'm sure in their minds, we're going to be hounded by the Romans, just like they came after Jesus. But Jesus assures the 11 remaining disciples that he would never abandon them. And this is a promise to us as well, that God will never abandon us. In fact, Jesus desired, desired to uh, make the temporary fellowship that he had with the disciples to become a permanent fellowship that he would have with them. Jesus emphasized the truthfulness of this dwelling place in the Father's house. He said, I'm going, uh, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. And he says, if it were not so, I would have told you. He is emphasizing the truthfulness of this. But he says that to them that he has a purpose in leaving. In verse 2, for I go to prepare a place for you. What did he mean? Jesus had just said that in my father's house are many dwelling places. Why does he now say I'm going to go and prepare a place for you? That sounds odd. Did he mean that he was going to make those dwelling places better? Kind of a home improvement show or a home improvement uh, endeavor on his part when he goes to the Father? Was he going to make those places better? Well, Jesus was a carpenter. (laughs) He was raised as a carpenter, but he was also the creator of the universe. He had the ability to say, to speak things into existence. And so... I really don't think that the the point of I go to prepare a place for you is that he's going to start building. Those places are already there. I think that what Jesus meant by I go to prepare a place for you was that he was going to take care of what was necessary to make that prepared place their home. Because up until now, if they would if they would die in their sin there was no place for them what he was saying was in god's eternal plan the work of calvary was necessary for those long before for the disciples right now and for us today the work of calvary is the way that this place is prepared for us as our home. He was going to the cross so that they could be accepted into their heavenly home by the Father. And I believe that Jesus was referring to the preparation of their entrance to the Father by his sacrificial death the very next day at Calvary. And so Jesus gave them this assurance that he would personally come back to receive them to himself in this glorious reunion. I'm going to prepare the way the place to make it a home for you, but I will come back. In verse 3, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. This promise is restated in John 14:18, I will not leave you as orphans," he said, "I will come to you. This is what Uh, Titus calls the blessed hope in Titus chapter 2 and verse 13 and 14. It says, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself, for his own possession, a people eager for good deeds. We call this the blessed hope, and we also call this the rapture. The exciting thing about the rapture is not just that we might have a great escape from this world, from our troubles, that we might not have to die. The greatest excitement about the rapture is that we will be with the Lord. That's what it says in First Thessalonians four sixteen to 18 For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And it says right here, And so shall we ever be with the Lord. What an assurance for us that we will be reunited with Christ. Those who belong to Christ will never be abandoned. They'll be received by Christ and dwell with Him in the Father's house. That's cause for us to have great joy, this assurance. We're assured that we will never fail. We're assured that Christ is going to hold us fast. We'll never fail. We're assured that we are... Going to be reunited eternally with Christ, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then, thirdly, the third assurance that's given here is the assurance of our acceptance through Christ. John 14, verses 4 through 6. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This final assurance is the essence of the gospel. Jesus teed this one up very well, didn't He? When He made the statement in verse 4, He said, And you know the way where I am going. He knew it would precipitate another question. And He knew who was going to say it. It was Thomas that steps forward. And Thomas bites hard on this one. He just blurted out in his confusion. And I'm glad that he did, aren't you? I'm glad glad that this verse is right here in Scripture for us. It ranks right up there for me, like John 3.16. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so... The question that Thomas asked was Lord we do not know where you're going how do we know the way Well this is both a warning as well as an assurance If if you don't know Christ it's a warning You know there are many many liberal churches and the majority of people do not have patience with that statement I am the way they, they believe that it's politically incorrect to say something like that, that it's narrow-minded, that it's a harsh, exclusive kind of thing to say there's only one way to the Father. But the way actually became a mantra for the followers of Christ. Acts 9, 1 and 2 says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples, of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way both men and women he might bring them bound to Jerusalem Aren't you glad this morning that you were counted as if you know Christ if you've trusted Christ that you're counted as one who is of the way that Jesus is the way for you To the Father, I'm glad, although some would argue, how can you be so exclusive? I'm glad to say today there is one way. There is a way for me to go to the Father, and it's Jesus Christ. There are a number of I am statements in the book of John. Actually, there are eight of them. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life, I'm the light of the world. He said, before Abraham was born, I am. He said, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. And this is the seventh here. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The the eighth one was, I am the true vine. What he was saying is, I as God am the way. I as the Son of God equal to God, am the way to the Father. And it was a direct answer to Thomas' question. What a reassurance. He had said to them, you know the way. And they did. They had confessed this before, but they became confused. They became troubled in their thinking because they started thinking about themselves and their own predicament in life. They were worried not about eternal things. They were worried about themselves, what will become of us. And this is why the gospel is so important to us. Because we become self-absorbed. We become focused upon things that are not of the Lord. We become focused on temporal things rather than eternal things. And we need to hear Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life no one comes to the Father but by me. Because that helps us to live lives that are focused correctly so that we can be to the glory of God in the way that we live. So that we're not doubting. So that we're not troubled. So that our minds are fixed upon the gospel. Well, Jesus says, I am the way. And then he says, I am the truth. Many people think about truth like they do beauty. Um, They say that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Well, a lot of people think of truth that way as well. Truth is in the eye of the beholder. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. There is really no such thing as truth. That's kind of the way the world thinks about truth. Problem is, that's not true. (laughs) And... I want to ask you a question this morning. Have you ever been on the receiving end of a lie? How does that feel? How about if that lie is about you? All of a sudden, truth becomes very, very important to us, doesn't it? Well, the Bible tells us that the whole world is on the receiving end of lies from the evil one. John eight forty four says, Satan is a liar and the father of all lies. And the evil one wants to confuse the gospel. He wants you to be misled about what the truth is. But we're here today hearing the words of Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Only Jesus, the truth, can take you to the Father. He does this by dealing with your sin. He did that in the context of our sermon this morning. He did that the very next day when He went to the cross of Calvary and He died there to prepare the way to the Father. The Father in His perfect Righteousness and holiness could never accept you if Jesus hadn't done that. And the sinless Savior died so that you might have faith in Him. Believe in me, Jesus said. So that you would have His righteousness imputed to you. So that you would be acceptable to the Father. No one comes to the Father but by me, he says. And then he says, I am the life. What a great passage is found in John chapter 11. And this might be the miracle that really set off the religious rulers. And that is the raising of Lazarus. Lazarus was Jesus' close friend along with his two sisters, Mary and Martha, and Jesus found out that his friend was very sick he was told that of course he knew that because he knows all things but Jesus waited several days before coming to the house of Lazarus and and meeting Mary and Martha and to come to la- the house where Lazarus was sick but in the meantime Lazarus died and John 11:21 to 27 says this. I want to read this passage. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Perhaps today God is opening your heart to the gospel. Will you, like Martha, declare that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that He is God who came in the flesh to live a perfect life and to become the way and the truth and the life for you so that you might be taken to the Father. It requires you to believe in Him. Just like Jesus said there, If your heart is troubled about eternity, believe in God, believe also in me. And if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You will go to the Father. So this morning I invite you, if you don't know Christ, you've heard a very, very clear gospel message about what salvation is. It means to be uh, given an assurance of a security in Jesus Christ that you will never be lost. It means that you will be united with Christ one day. And salvation in Him means that you will be accepted by the Father. Keith Hernandez is a baseball player, one of baseball's top all-time players. He was a five-time All-Star, a two-time world champion. One time he was a National League MVP. Eleven times he won the Gold Glove Award. Two times the Silver Slugger Award. He was the National League batting champion in 1979. But Keith Hernandez as great as he was, had one regret. His regret was that he never felt his father's acceptance. And one day, Keith asked his father, Dad, I have a lifetime batting average of 300. What more do you want? What more do I need to do to make you proud of me, for you to accept me? And his father replied back to Him. But someday, you're going to look back and say, I could have done more. That's a sobering thought. And it's a thought when I think of our relationship to the Father that thrills my soul. And that is because God will never say to us, but you could have done more when it comes to our eternal salvation. God looks at His Son, Jesus Christ, and sees everything accomplished. He sees us as complete in Him. And so we are accepted by the Father through the Son because no man comes to the Father but by the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I hope that you're resting in these assurances of Christ today the assurance that you're secure in Him, that you'll be reunited with Him, and that you are today and will be accepted by the Father through Him. And may this comfort your hearts as you dwell upon the gospel in the days ahead in this week. Let's pray together. Our Father, our hearts are thrilled by the gospel. They're thrilled by the fact that, you know, when I think about these disciples who had much trouble in their hearts and and they had so much to learn and how patient you were with them. And then I think of, I believe it's um, all of the disciples there except for John died the death of martyrdom for you. And John was beaten and exiled. And so when we look at these promises, we realize that it doesn't necessarily mean for us that all is going to be rosy and great for this life, for the circumstances that we come into. We know that all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution But far beyond that thought is the thought of the truth of the eternal promises that we have in Christ. Lord, that we are secure in Christ, that we're going to be with Him forever one day, and that He's made a home for us in this place that's already been prepared. And Father, that we are accepted by You because of what Your Son has done at Calvary. May the uh, thoughts of the gospel thrill us today. May we take the gospel, Lord, to this world that doesn't know you and share these hopes with them. And I pray that your name would be praised in our presence today as we think about you and about what you've done. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.